1: was still up 15%. It's been really impressive what some of these big tech companies have done during the slowdown and in the shutdown as well. We can start a conversation right there this morning with Michael Schaul of Marketfield Asset Management, the Chairman and Portfolio Manager and CEO, a busy man. Michael, fantastic to catch up with you this morning. Let's just start there. What stops the big from getting bigger?
2: Um, you know, nothing really other than, you know, valuations and eventually I think market cap overwhelms the capacity of a, of a market to support it. But, but look, I, I said to Tom earlier on, on, on television, I, I think at a time of great uncertainty, I, I think investors are happy to embrace the relative certainty of, of technology earnings. And, and there is an understanding, I think correctly, that, you know, the, the disturbance caused by the virus, both at home and at work, um, you know, has has yet again ratcheted it up the need to use technology and to invest in technology, both as a as a household or as a corporation?
3: Michael, there's a difference between investing in technology and investing in the old economy, and that's sort of the tension for a lot of these behemoths. I'm thinking about Amazon and the rumor that it's going to buy AMC theaters, which were propped up AMC prices yesterday. How much do you expect or would you like to see big tech go in and consolidate some of these other sectors that are more uh, sort of burdened by brick and mortar and old economy issues?
2: No. But I, mean, I think if I was a technology investor, I wouldn't want to see very much of it. I I, I don't think that, that Amazon buying AMC would be that significant to Amazon. It, you know, there's a few billion dollars of debt and a few hundred million dollars of, of you know of equity there. Um but I think that the sort of the great success of tech has been has been driven by technology and not by um, you know, physical activity. Amazon is something of a special case. Amazon is always being a, a physical company that, that used technology, um, you know, I guess its cloud business it's pure tech. But, but for the rest of them, um, I think you'd want to see them, they, you know, relatively specialized technology companies, and, and and not jump into the broader, broader economy.
3: Michael, as they remain specialized technology companies, there's a question about their supply chains, especially right now. And there's been talk about making supply chains more domestic. Yet a recent survey showed that big U.S. companies with business in China have no plans to move their supply chains out of that region. How much do you expect the rumor to turn into truth?
2: I think it will be a truth, but it will be a a long-term truth. It takes a long term, you know, takes a very long time, you know, for instance, to build a, a fab in the United States where we really don't have a high end, a high end fab. That, that may be a decade. Um, I, you know, I do think what you're seeing is, is people, you know, trying to not put all their eggs in one basket. So so I do think, that, you know, Taiwan, Korea, Vietnam, all of these as alternate manufacturings to China, um, you know, Sort of, a sort of disaster recovery um, you know idea I, you know, I think that is I think that is taking hold, um, but it, it's a very tall order to bring technology back to the United States. So that, that would be a long term process.
0: Michael, I want to talk about the heritage of market field and also Oscar Gru and just a certain view of international investment. It's been not terrible but just such a challenge for the last decade or even more. To overweight international, do we get back to a point where you have so much enthusiasm that you can overweight international investment?
2: Yes, I mean I think eventually, but it's been a hell of a long it's been a hell of a long road, and and you know you know the you know is dominated by you know by the mega cap technology companies, and it's very difficult for international indexes to compete you know to compete with that. Having said that, you know, if you look at uh, uh, year-to-date performance, you know, for, four and a bit months into it, you know, there are pockets of, of equivalent performance outside of the United States. The Nasdaq is positive year-to-date, but so is uh, the Shenzhen composite, which is very technology-driven. I didn't know but, Interesting. And the and, and, and Cosdaq in Korea is, is positive in local terms. You'd be nursing a small loss in, 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 you, know, in, in US, you know, in U.S. dollar terms. And the performance of a country like Taiwan is, is very equivalent to the S&P overall in, in dollar terms. So as I say, Asia is starting to stand out, um, not necessarily as, as something which is clearly beating the U.S. yet, but at least competing with it um, across sectors and, and, a, and a reasonable way, I think, to diversify if you don't want to have all of your holdings. But, but you know, this has been a, a remarkable five, six-year period of, of drastic outperformance by the U.S. Um, and it, it it hasn't obviously ended yet.
1: And Michael, I think you've touched on something really important. There are implicit bets in the indexes that you own. And if you buy at the index level, you have to know essentially what those implicit bets are. And quite clearly, in the United States, that is a bet on big tech. And in Europe, it isn't. It has been a bet on healthcare and financials. The former doing yep. well, the latter doing terribly. So let's talk about going forward from here. There is this tension at the moment. People look at the market and think the market's going away from the fundamentals, but there isn't really a big bet on a huge cyclical pickup. Yields are still very low. Financials are still on the floor. If you look at high yield spreads, they tightened quite a lot over the last couple of months, but haven't really done much over the last several weeks. Do you think we do have a cyclical, durable cyclical pickup in store? And where would you be rotating to with that in mind?
2: Uh, I think, yes. Uh, I mean, it, at least in portions. It's not going to be like 2009 with a sort of straightforward across across the board, very strong recovery, because you know we are... Oddly enough, going into a delinquency cycle, you know, at this uh, you know at this point in time. But I, I think a sector like the home builders, which were really quite well positioned coming into this, may do much much better than you know the economic data, you know, than the economic data would suggest. Um, so I, I think there are going to be portions of traditional cyclical industries that may do okay if China's domestic economy is okay, and particularly if their housing market is okay, and it, it seems to be at this point in time yeah, you know that's very, very important for some of the industrial metals. can be very important for copper. It's going to be very important for. it's going to be very important for iron ore. um and and by by extension is going to be quite important for some of those global industrial mining companies, um you know which have quietly recovered quite nicely from their march, you know from their march lows. So I, I think there's pockets of technicality mm-hmm. that look reasonably valued and and do look investable. But it's not 2009 where you simply have to shovel money into the market and, and mm. you know, wait for it to get to work.
0: Michael, one final question on Europe. And it's extraordinary the disinflation measurements that we see there, the unique economic slowdown. Where's the opportunity in Europe right now?
2: It's, it's not obvious, I, I, I have to say. Uh, you know, may, maybe the UK can, can do something different, um, You know, coming you know, coming out of this. Again, you've got an index there, which is, Going to be very commodity going to be very commodity sensitive but that you touched on the European banks before um, you know they have shown absolutely nothing you know they, they, they got clipped 50% between February and March and, and they've bounced about 5% since and, and that is not the sign of leadership.
1: Michael Schell always great to get your thoughts it's on this wonderful. program hope you and yours are doing well Michael fantastic to catch up with you Michael Schell there of Marketfield.
0: <laughs> right now, joining us, Marvin Lowe, he is with State Street, and he, what's wonderful about Marvin Lowe, folks, is he a heritage of technology on Wall Street, and that really is a different uh, view as well. Marvin, I, I've got to go right to the heart of the matter, which is the new technology. Do you expect other stocks to follow on from the nifty five, or are these just discreet beasts of their own being?
4: You know what, I, I think they are a discrete beast. Um, I think they're becoming more, um, unique, uh, in, in, what they're able to do. Um, you know, I, uh, listening to the conversations that the three of you just had are comparable to every conversation that I've had over the course of the last couple of weeks. And, you know, we look at, um, indicators of risk which, um, are somewhat down. And then we look at stocks and then we look at, you know, obviously the, the big five. And, um, the thought of, of, jumping into this market with all these unknowns, what you really want to do to a certain degree is preserve, as well as obviously generate returns. And solvency becomes this kind of new concept, um, you know, obviously not new for, for any of the, the bond guys that are looking at balance sheets for a while. But when you look at the equity world, solvency is easy, easiestly, most easy to find in a lot of those big names that you know,
1: keep coming up. Solvency? balance sheet liquidity cash balances all of those things and they take you to some of the big tech names now marvin that would make a lot of sense for people in the shutdown when things are bad and there's a rush for liquidity a rush for cash you go to the places that already have access to it or already have it on the balance sheet that would take you naturally to big tech big tech also is actually growing revenues even in the shutdown for some of these big names as we reopen, I think increasingly the question that I come up against, Marvin, is whether you should rotate away from the story somewhat or stick with it. What do you say to people when they ask you?
4: Um, I, think that, I think that we need to have um, the data, the information, the revenues, the... Uh, medical data to actually figure out what we're going to rotate into. I, I, think, I think that's the challenge. You know certainly when we kind of look at um, uh, look at companies from a peer valuation perspective um, you know a lot of these companies that have run uh, incredibly over the last uh, six weeks have even become more um, richly valued. But we still don't know the E on any of the other part of the market. And until we do, it's really hard to figure out where the rotation is going to be. So, um, you know, if you're comfortable with how you got here, I don't see anything that kind of changes that um, theme, if you will, uh, until we really know what reopenings are going to look like, until we really know what um, uh, what the E in terms of whether it's a 2020, 2021 type of number uh, is going to look like.
3: Yeah, one thing that's been a consistent theme in addition to the big tech has been avoiding companies that have have high leverage ratios. There has been a little bit of a shift recently, I've talked to a bunch more portfolio managers who say they want to start adding to their Russell 2000, their small and mid-cap allocations. Where do you stand on that? Do you think that there's been sufficient risk built into the valuations and the more highly indebted companies that you can start kind of tiptoeing into their stocks?
4: you know what um valuations overall still remain uh, a challenge to me um overall um you know i think i think the litany of unknowns that um uh that the three of you were discussing remain big unknowns to me um you're still buying a somewhat rich market given the fact that uh, you know we're not even sure if we get back to normal by the end of next year. Um, uh, you know, estimates are that that certainly things you know we, we we take out 2020, almost wipe it out, and we look at 19 versus 20, and we're theoretically back to normal. But that's a big if still in my mind.
3: So, Marvin, what do you buy if you don't buy U.S. stocks?
4: Um, you know, certainly, c- certainly, I think um, I think Asia um, is is uh, starting to. Uh, uh, jump on people's radars, um, you know, certainly the, the trade war uh, has to go in or um, reinvigorated uh, trade discussions have to go back into that discussion. Uh, but it does seem that, um, you know, Asia, particularly northern Asia, as they reopen up uh, with, with valuations, uh, with the caveat, you know, ultimately that um, these <clears throat> trade discussions are probably politics. And uh, I, I do, you know, I do think that they'll get resolved this year yeah. um, from the perspective that they need to. Uh, but it is but it is another risk. Right. But, you know, risk are everywhere.
0: Marvin, i got one more question. For you and me, you used to open up with a beverage <laughs> of your choice, the IBM annual report, and read a miracle known as free cash flow and development. That didn't work out. How do I avoid the IBMs that are out there? You were for years at Hamburg and Quist where you live this stuff. How do you avoid the tech company that just doesn't get it done over time?
4: Well, 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 I'll tell you, kind of of working in that environment, um, you know, I did learn a lot about what it takes in terms of forward thinking. You know, terms like futurists kind of are funny to a certain degree, but there was a lot of future thinking. Um, And I think it's very much around that. The the world is going to change after this, uh, and we're seeing it change very quickly. Um, I think we can Uh see some of these trends um, and, and, you know, capitalize on those.
0: What you just heard there, folks, is gospel. You can do all the fancy HP-12C mathy-mathy stuff you want. There's got to be a vision. Marvin Lowe, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with State Street. Right now, joining us, and this is a real joy, this is someone uh, who's done some really important research over the years at the Fed. Claudia Assam joins us with the Western Washington Center, Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Claudia, give us a scorecard on how the Fed has adjusted these inflation numbers that we've seen. Can you say that the Fed has directly intervened to support a better disinflation than what we would have had?
5: So I think the Fed is... Well, first, thank you for having me on today. I do think the Fed is fighting as hard as it can right now. I do not think the Fed can do this alone. I I take very little comfort in... uh, my God, I mean, these CPI, the consumer price index numbers are just frightening. Like, I am very worried that we are falling into a deflationary spiral. We have, I mean, it's just this, and pairing that with unemployment that is clearly over 20% right now. Even the Bureau of Labor Statistics last week said their 15% estimate was too low and probably too low by five percentage points. That you put this together, really high unemployment. Prices starting to fall. This, this is a recipe. This is a depression that we're barreling towards or already in. And I take, and you mentioned the recovery just a few minutes ago, and I take absolutely no comfort when Ben Bernanke and others say, Well, we, we learned in the 1930s how to fight a depression. We're gonna, it's not going to happen. We're not going to have 10 years of protracted malaise in the economy. And I said, Prove it to me. Like the Fed is acting, but I am so worried that Congress is not going to do what they know they have to do. And we are going to pay for it for a long time.
3: Claudia, these are some pretty stark words. As a former Federal Reserve economist yourself, you've been in the front seat when it comes to a lot of uh, very concerning events. But to say that you're worried that we're falling into a deflationary spiral and that we're barreling towards... A depression what can congress do i mean they've already uh, had this two trillion dollar plan There were there's a uh, talk about doing another one or two trillion dollar plan to bail out states and local governments are you saying that that is not enough to prevent to prevent deflation i don't think so
5: and i like you said i I watched numbers. I watched the Great Recession happen in real time. I started in 2008 forecasting consumer spending. When I pulled up again the numbers this morning, just from March on what was happening to consumer spending and personal income and consumer price indexes, I just, I can't watch this. Like, we're just, I am. I mean, we are just, like, we have numbers from the second half of March. April is going to be intense like I I saw retail sales drop off a cliff in 2008 and I'm gonna well, well, wait, Claudia, and
0: I, I don't Claudia, want to interrupt here but this is so important yeah, yeah. this is absolutely critically important over the weekend a whole bunch of first-rate uh, market economists including dr. Englander of standard charter bank modeled out 22 24 and even 27 percent unemployment are you doing the same mm-hmm. thing
5: I have been very leery of forecasting too far out okay because I can't even tell you what the next two months do and I'm a really good forecaster uh, and but over the weekend I was running cost estimates on the next relief package I mean there's a lot of movement among the Democrats to get a proposal out and I costed out three and a half trillion dollars more and I truly believe that's what they should do I don't. If we get two trillion out, and we're extending the jobless benefits through the end of next year, if we get a trillion dollars out to state and local governments, if we keep pushing the funding into Medicaid through the end of next year, that's that's about two trillion dollars, and that's absolutely what we need to see get through Congress. And I am so scared that it is not going to make it through the Senate. I have full faith in Speaker Pelosi that that's coming through, um, but she's got a tough sell.
1: Why do you think she has a tough sell? They've worked so well together over the last couple of months. Why would that collective will fade now, (laughs) Claudia? I mean, we can all laugh at this, but over the last few months, they have worked tremendously well together to to actually pass trillions of dollars of aid. Why is that going to stop?
5: Because they're already talking about deficits being too big. We have blown through, and I do, I applaud Congress for getting you know, the $3 trillion-plus money out the door, or at least pledging it. It's not all out the door yet. Uh, so it's kind of like they, they blew through their whole playbook, the trillions of dollars that they spent in the Great Recession, and we saw them, and it was so hard to watch this because uh, I was still focused on consumers and families and their finances, but Congress stepped away. Austerity came through. And it wasn't just Republicans. It was a whole set of academic economists, people on Wall Street, people who knew better than to put, like, to stop the spigot, like, because we never have done that in a recession. And oh my goodness, like, we're not even like two and a half months into this. And that is everything. We have to, and last night there were articles out, you know, members of Congress saying, well, how are we going to pay for this? And I'm like, sir. This is what you do deficit spending. Like Congress is the only institution in this entire country that can
3: just send money out and they do not have to balance their budget. It's Claudia, there's, there's a question from, one, uh, from a listener, and I think it's a very good mm-hmm. one, uh, who asks whether all of the money that's been pumped into the economy from Congress and frankly from the Federal Reserve as well counts as stimulus yet, or if it's simply gone toward plugging the gap in revenues and GDP that was lost due to the coronavirus shutdowns.
5: I call this relief. I just, we have, we have a national emergency. We have people dying and we have people losing jobs and we have people, businesses closing. And we have an absolute crisis at state and local government. Like we're already seeing them lay off workers by the tens of thousands and their teachers, their first responders. So to me, this is a natural disaster. It is, I mean, that's to me the closest I can come to this. And so what we're pumping out is relief. And this was a big disaster, so we need trillions and trillions of dollars. And what I say to the people who worry about and say, and, and it is, like, the debt-to-GDP ratio is going to two. And that, we haven't seen that since World War II. I, I understand the people who raise red flags at this. The best way for us to get to the other side and not have to jack up tax rates is to get this economy back on right. its feet.
0: Claudia, we've got to leave it we'll there. Stop. Claudia Sam, thank you so much. Washington Center for Equitable uh, Growth. Really impassioned there about the dynamics uh, right now. What is so evident in this modern technology is we dash from tweet to tweet, maybe like Lisa, we're sophisticated get out on Instagram. But far more importantly, we have the attention span of a gnat. And that means that we better step back every once in a while and actually read a book to get scope, texture, visibility. Right now I'm reading George Magnus' Red Red Flags on China, the Elizabeth Economy of the Council on Foreign Relations, her wonderful recent effort on China. And then there's a new book minted today, The World, A Brief Introduction. By Ambassador Haas, Richard Haas is a president of the Council on Foreign Relations. In his book, could not be better time. This is a book, uh, Richard. This summer, that you throw at the the the, the smart mouth kid and say, "Shut up and read this." What is in the world a brief introduction that the smart ass college graduate has to read?
6: <laughs> Tom, I'm shocked that you would frame it that
3: way. Are you? But, uh... <laughs>
6: actually not. Uh, but for someone who's 21, 22, that means they were born at the beginning of this century. Well said. And if they, live, if they live the kind of life that hopefully they will, their life will almost track, given life expectancy, the 21st century. And that means they've got to be prepared for a world where you've got all the classic challenges of great power competition and all that. You know, history never stopped. But now you've got this whole overlay of climate change and obviously pandemics. Terrorism, like we experienced the 9/11. So my goal is to help these young men and women, but also not so young men and women who either never studied these issues or forgot what they learned if they did study it, cope with this with this uh, with this world that we you know, try as some might, we can't escape.
3: Richard, there is a key feature perhaps of the 21st century, or perhaps we are entering a new era of deglobalization. that's what a lot of people are talking about today. Can you give us a sense of what you're expecting on that front, people saying they're going to make their supply chains more domestic, reduce ties uh, with the rest of the world?
6: Clearly, that's a foot in, in part because parts of globalization are, are, are painful. Uh, so you'll see just what you said, some diversification on supply chains, greater domestic self-sufficiency. We're seeing borders in some countries closed to people. We're seeing better, greater barriers to trade. But deglobalization, one, has its limits. You can't opt out of pandemics very well. You clearly can't opt out of, of climate change. Very hard to opt out of terrorism. So you can, you can declare it as your policy. You can't always uh, carry it off. And second of all, it comes with costs. If you close your borders to people, you're going to lose great talent that have made this country what it was. If you close your borders to various types of imported goods, it's going to be inflationary. You're not going to have the innovation that comes with imports. Others are going to retaliate against your exports. So you can, again, in some cases, embrace deglobalization. It comes at a cost. And in many cases, deglobalization is simply denial. And you can't. it's not a yeah. serious option.
0: Richard Haas, your essay that was in Foreign Affairs uh, was just outstanding of, I'm going to say, six, eight weeks ago, whatever it was. It was just shockingly uh, complete on this moment that we're living. When you launch a book like The World, you've got to have a theory. I mean, Fareed Zakaria had Post-American World, and there was, you know, the Washington Consensus and other grand theories that become iconic. What is the Haas theory of our international relations?
6: My theory is that history is very much going on, that what goes on in the world uh, affects everyone. Borders, uh, sovereignty, none of these things are are impermeable barriers. So isolationism is not a serious option. Unilateralism to fix things is not a serious option. Essentially, we've got to be involved in the world. My My favorite metaphor, Tom, is the ostrich. We can stick our head in the sand. But we're going to be washed over and washed away by the tide if we're not careful. And that's what's so different about this world. Again, we've got this dangerous, demanding combination of all the old kinds of problems. Plus, we now have a whole new set of problems that comes with globalization.
0: Lisa, I think this could become iconic at every IR class, coast to coast, the Haas-Ostrich Theory.
3: Yeah, I think it works. <laughs> I think that we've, we've, we've definitely done some ostrich theory uh, in the Abramowitz household. I will, I will just ask Richard, uh, going forward, there is a question about the increasing role of governments post-pandemic, the mm-hmm. idea that states sure. are getting more control, and one uh, prominent mm-hmm. economist saying recently that he thinks that the U.S. is going to become more like China, and so are other developed market countries. Do you agree?
6: It's a bit of an overstatement, but I do think one of the consequences of the pandemic will be to move the pendulum domestically in democratic market oriented countries. And we're going to see a larger government role. Uh, we'll see it with all the relief effort in you know, th- this country. And we're also facing you know, prolonged long term unemployment. So I think this question of what's the safety net? is going to become a bigger one so the 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 debate that had oh. begun is now going to be accelerated and i think it's fair to say that the pendulum is going to switch more or swing more in the direction of an enduring state role because you know that once you put these kinds of things in place very hard to take them away that's the history of entitlements
0: richard Haas, congratulations folks uh the publication today of the world a brief introduction by ambassador richard Haas, of course with a council on foreign relations <music> Uh, Michelle Patch is with Johns Hopkins, and she's truly in the trenches of hospital care as a clinical nurse specialist. Let's listen in.
7: Ventilators uh, have been absolutely critical as we fight uh, to help individuals survive uh, this illness, Um, and we have uh, seen improvements. Uh, in the availability of them, um, and as uh, some individuals are are um, recovering and able to be extubated, um, we then of course you know would have those ventilators available for others. Um, uh, they um, they truly are um, remarkable. They're. They're interesting too though in, you know, there's been some discussions as well behind the scenes as we're thinking, trying to think bigger about how do we really how do we make the best use of our technology uh, while also protecting our staff and protecting our our PPE? So there has been, um, you know, some uh, work by engineers, by nurses, by others, um, you know, how can we maybe uh, be using those ventilators maybe from a distance? Um, But again, there's so much that we still need to do uh, and, and far that we need to go. But right now, we're, we're pretty stable, at, at least I can say in the Johns Hopkins system, our ventilator uh, situation is, is stable at the moment. Uh, Michelle, there are a number of worrying reports about uh, blood clots being formed because of the virus. How much do we understand about the linkage between this? There are more questions than answers, I think, uh, at this point. Um, again, uh, many are, are studying what is this uh, connection? Is it a direct result of the virus itself? Um, Is it uh, really more a correlation of the level of inflammation, the damage to our blood vessels uh, throughout the body? To what extent uh, does fever play into this? Um, uh, But uh, there are some people who may be more uh, susceptible to developing clots. Um, we certainly do treat individuals uh, prophylactically and, and, and watch very closely, um, but we're still, uh, we're still gathering evidence to really understand the, the specific um, risk in, within COVID as maybe opposed to other illnesses. I mean, what do we know about, you know, other symptoms that actually persist? Once the infection clears, are are patients no longer, you know, be able to pass it on, but could still be sick for, you know, sick for many weeks or months? Certainly, you know, the convalescent time can be long. Um, A lot of it depends upon, uh, you know, the underlying circumstances of each individual person. Um, In terms of being able to um, pass the virus, uh, there, there is a time frame for the most part um, where you would be uh, able to, to pass that and for others to contract
0: it. Michelle Patch, the Johns Hopkins University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.